Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Widderfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And to do that, we are holding conversations with some of our fellows and other leading experts in Scotland to talk about important issues and the challenges that we face as a society. You can find out more about our work on our website at rse.org.uk. Today I'm speaking with Professor Jim Ski, Professor of Sustainable Energy at Imperial College London, and Professor Camilla Toulmin, Senior Associate in Climate Change at the International Institute for Environment and Development, and Professor of Practice at the University of Lancaster. Jim is co-chair of the Working Group 3, covering mitigation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a former member of the UK Committee on Climate Change, and perhaps most pertinently for this conversation, Chair of Scotland's Just Transition Commission. Camilla is a senior fellow at the Africa Europe Foundation with responsibility for sustainable energy and for agri-food systems, an associate at the Inter- Institute for New Economic Thinking, and has spent 40 years work at the interface between environment and development, spanning both local and global scales. With such a wealth and breadth of expertise, who better than Jim and Camilla to talk to us today about just transitions in Scotland and beyond? Jim, I wonder if I might come to you first of all. Just transition has become very much part of the, the language and vocabulary around, around climate change. But can you just explain what it means and what it means to you and why it's so important? Yeah, you know, well, just to say there's no agreed definition of just transition, but there are a set of principles out there that actually started with the International uh, Labour Organisation. And on the Scottish just transition, uh, what, what we said it was about, it was making sure that the benefits of the trans- you know, the climate transition need to be shared in a, in a fair way and just emphasise there can be benefits if it's handled rightly. But it's also about avoiding uh, the risks that people, certain kinds of people, people in certain kinds of jobs are disadvantaged in an unfair way uh, by the transition to net zero. So that's about it. It's very important that it's, of course, it's about outcomes, but it's also about the process as well, because people need to be engaged with it. Otherwise, the transition to net zero is not going to happen. Fairness is the essence of it. And I think perhaps, as much as anything, it's thinking about what might block that transition and the way that particular political interests could uh, make it very difficult for the transition to happen if it's not seen how the benefits from the transition will be properly shared. So it's also trying to link that sort of more technical um, understanding of transition with a need for the political process to be able to handle it. And, and Camilla, a lot of your work has obviously been in, in Africa. Does does the notion or the concept or the principles of just transition, transition transfer across to there? Well, they do very much so. I think both at a country level, but also at an international level. Um, I was just thinking, Jim, wouldn't you say in lots of ways that the UN framework convention on climate change is in effect Um, a global, it's an attempt to make a global just transition um, and to bring in the voices, the interests, the perspectives um, of different groups 
to understanding how we make these changes together. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the language of the Framework Convention and the Paris Agreement, it's littered with ideas right, about common but differentiated responsibilities, the ideas of equity, poverty, eradication, uh, attention to sustainable development. So, I mean, Camilla's absolutely right. Uh, the, 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 the ideas behind Just Transition tend to be embedded in, in these international agreements. And then, of course, I mean, if you look at particular African countries, um, Africa's massively diverse. And so if you've got a country like South Africa or Nigeria, Angola, Algeria, that are very heavily dependent either on coal or oil, then they have a very particular set of issues around how they wean themselves off that. That's obviously very different to a country like Burkina Faso or um, Liberia or Sierra Leone that have tiny emissions per head um, and who really need help in terms of thinking about how to get investment in the new clean renewable energies that are going to make it possible for them to grow and develop their economies. Yeah, maybe if I can just just add to, add to that, Rebecca, it's very striking that the term just transition tends to have been applied in the last few years in a very narrow set of circumstances. It's mainly been about how countries exit from the coal industry. And, uh, you know, Camilla's mentioned South Africa. And in fact, uh, you know, the Just Transition initiatives in South Africa are, are very definitely around that. I think one of the things that the Scottish Just Transition Commission did and why there's a lot of international attention on it is that it's extended the Just Transition concept and its application to get beyond the coal industry and to get into a wider range of aspects. And that is going to be essential. I think if it just stays rooted in the coal industry, it, it's not going to be so widely applicable. We've, we've heard, I guess, quite a lot of the attention does seem to have focused, certainly in the sort of early conversations, very much on the implications for the oil and gas industry. And, and, and that conversation is beginning to broaden out maybe into other areas like the agricultural sectors. But can you say a little bit more, Jim, about how these implications sort of work out on the ground and how they can best be managed? Yeah, well, well, well I mean, I mean, just, just transition and the application of its principles, it gets to all areas of policymaking. You know, once you take it broad, it covers everything, which is why I think it's important that Scotland has actually created a just transition minister to try and coordinate all the activities across different domains. Uh, but the big three, I, I think, for Scotland specifically, the big three headline issues are the you know the the exiting from oil the oil and gas industry and uh, what, what that means for you know the changing structure of energy supply. There's a big issue around housing and its refurbishment because there are triple wins there around reducing carbon emissions, building up high, more higher skilled em employment, and addressing fuel poverty. And then the other very big one in Scotland is, is the question of land use uh, is now an issue. And I have to say, as a townie and an energy person, my biggest education on the Just Transition Commission was learning about the challenges uh, around just transition in the agriculture and land sector, which I find totally humble. I'm totally humbled by the complexity of, of the issues that, that we're faced with. And, and Camilla, is, uh, land use, I, I imagine, has been very much an important part of, of your work um, over the last uh, over the last decades. How is how is just transition playing out in the land use sector in the work that you're engaged in? 
Well, um, I mean, I suppose I'm watching what's happening on the land use question in the UK and European scene as much as I am um, in Africa. Um, on the African continent, uh, there's a big issue around uh, the use of wood fuel and charcoal for cooking. And there's been a big push over the last few years to try and get gas, LPG, into cooking systems, particularly in urban areas in different parts of Africa, so that women have got a clean cool to cook with, a clean fuel to cook with, so that they're not um, plagued by smoke. And also, um, if you look at carbon emissions, you know, you get a net win from stopping charcoal, kerosene and wood fuel. Um, and the benefits in terms of landscapes and reforestation um, and shift to LPG. But there's been some um, kind of slowness to be willing to adopt uh, gas as a clean cooking fuel because people think gas, a fossil fuel, we shouldn't have that. But in terms of both the health benefits, the time and the drudgery, um, and also the health of the ecosystem, in fact, shifting from um, wood fuel to um, LPG is is really a winner. I mean, it's interesting, actually, what you're both saying there in terms of the co-benefits. RSE had a conference on climate change earlier this week, and that was one of the things that came out quite strongly about that is um, thinking about actually, the, the, I think you said right at the start, Jim, about what some of the benefits are of, of that transition and making sure those benefits are, are realised. I mean, both of you spoke sort of earlier on about the importance of people needing to be engaged. And I was just wondering how far you feel that those communities that are maybe on the sharp end, I mean, thinking maybe in terms of Scotland, first of all, the oil and gas communities or the communities that have been very reliant on, on those industries, how far are they behind this notion of just transition and how can they be best engaged or how are they being engaged in terms of supporting that transition to a, a rather different world? Uh, well, maybe just to come in and say the phrase just transition, you know, it's caught on in Scotland, but I think it's it's rather caught on in the salons of Edinburgh and Glasgow rather than being spread more widely, if I can put it that way. Because uh, certainly there have been surveys done with oil and gas workers and you will find five or 10 percent of them have ever heard of the concept of, of just transition. You, you because They're very much more concerned about immediate, immediate ideas. But. It's worthwhile saying that a lot of these surveys also show that people who oil, work in the oil and gas industry see a lot of disadvantages to work in, in, the, in the oil and gas industry. You know, the working patterns off on, off on the rigs is not sort of family friendly or anything else. And it's also very subject to the very variations in the global oil markets. You know, the price goes up, people get taken on, price goes down, people are laid off. And I think one of the potentials is a lot of the skills in that industry can actually be moved into other things like offshore renewables, potentially hydrogen and carbon capture and storage, if you go in that direction. And because these are very capital intensive things, if we plan properly for it, it could give the signals in a more stable kind of employment prospects, you know, as they people move from one part of the energy sector to another. So how do we need, how, I mean, it's interesting what you say about the surveys and that sort of low level of awareness, but if we are going to plan properly for it, we do need to be engaging with those communities and those workers. Have you got any ideas or views on how we might do that more effectively? 
Well, well, I mean, first of all, I I don't think in the end of the day it particularly matters whether people are familiar with the phrase just transition as long as we get on with the underlying, underlying ideas and perhaps express it in more common language about about fairness and you know protecting people's people's employment. I think that's probably the more important part of that. But there are, there are lots of practical ideas around there. I mean, you, you know the 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 Scottish government has uh, invested in the climate the climate emergency skills action plan, and there are also issues around skills passports, for example for people to allow the skills that they've acquired working in the oil and gas industry to be recognised in other sectors of the energy industry. So, for example, if you've been a diver on a North Sea oil or gas platform, you need to pay £1,500 to be retrained to do the same, much the same job on an offshore renewables platform. That does not make any sense, sense at all to do that kind of... It's a real obstacle especially as the industry is moving much more towards contractualization, self-employed people rather than people who are on payroll and face the, the costs of their own and things. So when you get down to it, it's very practical issues like that that we, we really need to deal with. That's quite interesting, actually. It, I think it ties in with sort of an increasing understanding of the need to build in experience in terms of developing effective policy and effective, effective policy interventions. I mean, Camilla, from from your work, are there things that you found particularly useful techniques and mechanisms or approaches that are being used to engage people in the decisions that impact upon their lives and and to support that, not just using those experiences into into policy, but into practice as well? Well, just just quickly on the um, transition and skills question, I think it's important to think of this as a, a, a journey over time. And one might expect over a 20, 25-year journey that there would be, you know, people retire, um, people come into the industry. And so as much as anything, I think the Just Transition is about um, offering new opportunities to the younger generation so that they don't get into the oil and gas sector in the first place. I mean, so opening up, um, the R&D, the skills development that makes sense for the industries of the future um, so that you've got less of a, um, a, you know, a big number of people needing to make that transition. So I think if one thinks about it over time, it all becomes um, much more doable. Um, in terms of thinking about what makes sense for um, engagement with communities, I think I think the most important thing is creating a sense of confidence and trust that this is a process that they can have a real role in shaping. Um, And that goes back to how government has worked with um, people at lower lower levels of the administration over many years. Uh, If I take a number of African countries where I've worked, you know, in, in lots of places, that relationship is very difficult because people see that they pay their taxes but get nothing back um, and that their interests aren't heard. Whereas in other parts of Africa, you know, there's a much more positive relationship that's developed between national and particularly between local government and local communities. Um, I think it's all to do with people feeling that their perspective is understood 
and that they can shape the way in which decisions are made, building on their own knowledge and experience, and also that they have power of decision-making over the funding that's being provided. Um, we've been at IID, we've been doing work in Senegal, Mali, Tanzania, and Kenya, building up this decentralized climate finance program that essentially lodges money at village and local government level so that people have got direct control over that rather than kind of waiting, hoping, and praying that small drops might, you know, trickle down from from central government. So I think those are some of the, the, the necessary issues. Quite, quite a lot in there. I was just wondering in terms of the, the work that the Just Transition Commission has been doing, Jim, under your leadership, is that something that, that you looked at in terms of their, the sort of the handing over of resources, if you like, to local communities to, to make the decisions about actually what would be required? Yeah, yeah. What, one of the, the four big themes that we sort of led on with our recommendations was, was entirely about participation and, you know, bringing decision making, making close to people. And uh, it, it, there were a lot of very specific things in there, but we were attracted to the idea of green participatory budgeting at the local authority level, uh, you know, with much more involvement in local people of how budgets are actually set. But even then, with local authorities, I question, are they close enough to actual communities? So the importance of community groups uh, to act as, act as a bridge there. And we were very, term, you know, we had representatives of community groups on the First Commission and, and you know, we, we would aim, aim to go in that direction. Things like the Citizens' Assembly on climate in Scotland was an, an important feature. I mean, it's the kind of thing you've just got to keep on beating the drum and continuing the processes. I think one of the big challenges probably resourcing around local authorities. Do they have the capacity to do all the things we expect of them You know, at the moment? Because they, they have a huge potential role, and I think without them it, it won't happen. Uh, you know, so we need to think very carefully about resourcing and processes for actually making it come about. And RSC's um, Post-COVID Futures Commission uh, reported earlier this week, and, and one of their recommendations is, is precisely about putting people at the heart of, of policymaking um, and, and, and of public services, but also recognition that in order to do that, in order to do public engagement well, that there's a need to build up capacity and capability just both amongst ourselves as citizens, but amongst um, policymakers and people working at a local, local authority level. I mean, just in terms of that sort of interrelationship between these different levels, if I can put it in those terms, individual community, local government, national government, and beyond, that's quite a complex space in which to be working. Did the Just Transition Commission try and navigate a, a way through that at all? Um, well, yeah, yeah, well, just to say, we, you know, we met for two years and I have to say, you know, people talk about talking the talk and walking the walk. And uh, there was a lot of talking in that initial stage. Our job was to produce the recommendations and set the direction. And I think with the, the Just Transition Commission, its second phase is much going to be uh, about making things happen and monitoring what government uh, does to make sure that you, you know, that, that it's, it's doing the, the job as, uh, as well. So yes, um, you know, we, we we did talk about talk a lot about it. I mean, just to say, one of the things that we talked about a lot actually was what makes a good recommendation to government, <laughs> and uh, what, what is one. And there was a kind of a Goldilocks principle we arrived at that guided us. We don't want recommendations that are so vague 
that they don't mean anything on a Monday morning. So putting people at the heart of it, that's a classic kind of recommendation. Yes, it's obvious it's for beating the drum or shaking the tambourine, but it doesn't tell somebody what to do. On the other hand, you don't want to do something that's so specific that a civil servant can spot the flaw in it, uh, you know, a mile off. It's a kind of a mid-level recommendation. And we thought about that very carefully before we came up with the 24 recommendations that we did come up with. No, it's a very, very fair point. And, and just to reassure, the COVID Commission had a, a top level recommendation and had three or four actions that were, were again, you know, not so specific that, that there wasn't any room for manoeuvre and further discussion, but gave a clear sense of maybe what actions should be taken. But if, if we think about this, the sort of looking at the different levels um, within a country of, 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 of engagement, but what about between countries and and you know, can we get a just transition on a global level, recognising, I suspect, particularly very much in your work, Camilla, is, you know, some of the poorer countries of the world who've, who've you know, had historically and in fact still do have very low uh, greenhouse gas emissions per person. What does just transition look like at a global level to you, Camilla? Well, uh, I think there are a number of things. I think one is uh, recognising and uh committing to the pledge of 100, million, 100 billion per year for um, developing countries to help with both mitigation and adaptation. That pledge is still, unless you know to the contrary, Jim, that pledge is still got a bit of a gap in it um, in terms both of the headline amount, but also uh, the sense of confidence that it will actually be delivered. Um, so that's key. Um, you know, I think that the COVID experience has also created a level of um, distrust, if you like, which needs to be rebuilt. I think um, those countries, particularly in Africa, who were relying on more rapid delivery of the COVID vaccines have felt that um, they really need to look after themselves and they can't rely on the multilateral process as much as they might have three, four years ago. Um, so I think trying to rebuild trust is um, a really important part of this picture. And then thinking about clever ways of unlocking capital. At the moment, we've got you know, significant amounts of private capital sitting in rich countries that's not earning much in the way of interest. And, and yet at the same time, you've got capital scarce countries in many parts of the developing world who could really use that capital to build the energy systems of the future. Um, but they're paying 8, 10, 12% plus in terms of annual rates of interest. So there's a real dysfunctionality, if you like, in our global finance system in terms of being able to tap into that money, make it available make sure that there are credible um, investment frameworks in those countries so that um, that will return um, a proper um, amount to the people who've invested. So I think, I think there's a whole number of, of different things that, that need to be done, but I think rebuilding trust is a key part of that. Thanks, Camilla. And Jim, is that something that the IPCC has been thinking at all about in terms of the implications of COVID and that how might that impact on the, the willingness or the confidence of engaging and addressing climate change? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, well, of course, the IPCC reports are still in draft, which is where I have to go in, a, in about half, half an hour's time. But just to say, you know, the just transition ideas are scoped into the next synthesis report for IPCC. Uh, you know, so, so, so they, they will, be, will absolutely be addressed. Uh, but just to say on, on Camilla's point, I mean, I think just transition, you know, it applies both within countries' bounder, boundaries and across them. And I think Camilla's mentioned the money bit of it, but I think the other part of it is that developed countries and the big emitters uh, should be making their commitments to get their emissions down because, you know, it, it's essential if, uh, if countries are going to be able to adapt to climate change or avoid loss and damage that the big emitters actually do take very ambitious uh, ambitious action. And I completely agree with the, the fact that you the, the hundred billion point that Camilla's made. The other thing to say internationally is the question of sharing experience about what is actually happening within national boundaries on just transition. It's worthwhile saying that, I mean, there's been a, an extraordinary amount of international attention to what Scotland's been doing on just transition, which is almost embarrassing. You, you know, we, we, we need to manage the expectations on that, but you know, there's been a huge interest, especially in European countries, uh, with the EU Green Deal and the just transition components of that, and also North America as, as well, another place where there's been a lot of interest. And what's your you talk there, Jim, about managing expectations? What's your nervousness then in terms of what people are expecting and what might be able to be delivered? Uh, well, 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 my fear is that just transition are just two words that are sort of sprinkled like magic dust on transition policies that somehow make it all socially acceptable. And actually, it, it is very difficult to do it. The challenges of net zero and the challenges of making that transition just are very, are very large. And I think it's very important that not to convey the message that it's, it's all too easy because there's an awful lot of hard work uh, that needs to be done and a lot of serious commitments that need to be made. Yes, and I guess it is getting that balance of, there are win-wins, but there are also trade-offs and difficult choices to be made. Camilla? Yeah, I just wanted to come back a bit on that and ask, um, well, I wanted to ask Jim one question and then talk a bit about land use. Um, Jim, what difference do you think the COVID uh, crisis has made to um, our prospects for just transition? And I'm thinking perhaps of, you know, the big role that government has taken. Um, yeah, over the crisis, has, does that help? In what other way do you think we've been either held back or possibly accelerated? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's no, there's no sim simple answer to that. I mean, there's a very transitory effect on energy demand and emissions, and I think everybody expects that to you, you to kind of bounce back again uh, completely. Uh, the the world is full of inequalities, and COVID has exacerbated these inequalities. And I, th I think there's also the risk that, you know, climate change action, if it's not formulated in the right way, could also exacerbate inequalities as well as, uh, 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 as help to, to address them. So the challenge of just transition is desi designing policies in, in that right kind of way. In the longer term, the fact that governments have actually had to take very decisive action on a very immediate problem is an important lesson about what you can achieve if you if you act very decisively. And that, that I think, is much more difficult to translate into policy and political action. But I think it demonstrates what can be done. And we get into 
perpetual debate. I mean, we've been debating since time immemorial the balance between markets and planning. But I think both COVID and the climate emergency raise that issue about what the balance is. I mean, I don't want to throw away markets, absolutely. But whether markets operate within a much more planned framework, given the urgency of action, I think is a big challenge. Maybe we just pick up that because, I mean, one thing with COVID, it was uh, both acting decisively, but also investing, I guess, at scale. And, and clearly COVID was an a, acute problem and climate change is a, a maybe could be described as a, a more chronic one. But in terms of thinking about investment uh, and maybe thinking about it in Scotland, first of all, what sorts of investments do you think will be needed to promote greener industry and, and generate uh, new jobs? If, if, if this is this is for, for, for me, Rebecca, I, I mean, just to say that there's some part, some investments will look after themselves. I mean, now that, uh, you know, uh, renewable energy is effectively cheaper than producing energy from conventional sources, I think we can count on private capital markets to come in and a, a, actually get that done. I'm not, I'm not sure the, the public policy needs to keep a watching brief on it, but, you know, it will be, will be private capital. Where I think uh, in terms of more public investment, uh, it will be things like building up the capacity of, say, Scottish enterprises to you know, meet the business opportunities that come uh, from a net zero transition. So our trade union uh, members of the Commission would absolutely emphasise that Scotland has not done very well out of creating jobs about out of the offshore renewables industry so far, for example. And I think it's very important that that is done by building up the capacities of Scottish industry and is not done by just simply erecting trade barriers to allow you know, to allow perhaps less efficient enterprises to, to to survive. So I think that's a very important part of it. And the you know the land sector is also going to need a lot of investment. And I think the Scottish National Investment Bank has already put money up for you you know expanding woodland areas in Scotland, which is something that that would need to happen. But again, it rather depends how that's done. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm concerned that a big chunk of the Scottish National Investment Bank money has gone into uh, forestry activity. Um, people are still planting trees on peatland, which is complete madness. I mean, it's, it's going backwards rather than forwards. And very often, and I speak now more about the northwest of England, where I spend quite a lot of time with my Lancaster hat on. There's a real sense amongst farmers that the playing field is being tilted against them through various forestry grants, which make it much easier for us to go back to some of the things that we saw in the 70s and 80s of, you know, people getting tax advantages from buying up a lot of land and then putting it under conifer. So I think we do need to be very careful about how the investment in forestry takes place. And again, go back to um, landscapes and people and think about, well, what kind of forestry, how much of it, where, um, and who benefits, rather than it being um, a sort of large-scale conifer-type approach that um, brings benefits to, to investors in distant parts of the country or elsewhere. I think just to think about uh, what it makes sense to try and encourage um, I think getting both individuals and community groups to invest in renewable energy 
is really important. Jim says, you know, it's it's cheaper now than any other form of energy, which is true. But then there are all sorts of um, additional costs that people forget about, like the connection charge. So you've got a micro hydro uh, plant, which is able to generate electricity, but the electricity company is going to charge you £200,000 to connect that site to the grid. So there are there are all sorts of things which are getting in the way of making more of this happen. And I think that um, we need to think about that not only in terms of our own country, but also in other parts of the world as well. So in many, in many parts of Africa, you know, villagers have been investing in individual solar panels. The village that I've been following, Mali, has got more than 200 solar panels, each bought by a family or an individual. So they're generating huge amounts of electricity for their own purpose, recharging mobile phones and everything. But there's no way at the moment for them to be able to aggregate um, and feed that power into the wider system because it's those kind of connection costs that can be really costly and um, difficult to make happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I've been itching to get in here and showing it a little bit. So j- just to say, our, our uh, IPCC group managed the uh, special report on climate change and land. And I just want to completely endorse uh, Camilla's message about it's how you do it that matters. That was a very, very strong message. It matters in terms of scale, the kind of species you choose and the land management practices, practices you, you put in. This is absolutely critical. And turning it back to Scotland a little, I think we have to acknowledge there are really some fundamental structural challenges around land use and agriculture. The heavy concentration of land ownership, coupled with the the prevalence of tenancy farming and some of the, quite frankly, perverse incentives that that that, that addresses, means this is a very, very complex area I need to think. I had never realised the complexity of thinking about a multi-generational tenancy and how that interacts with inheritance laws and what that does you does for incentives for mitigation measures. But unless we grapple, understand these issues properly and grapple with them, we won't get the solutions. It's more deep, deeper rooted rather than just the individual in, policy instrument you want to apply. And that, that is difficult, isn't it, when you're trying to sort of engage and with a lot of people like me who are lay people. Um, and that complexity is it's beyond it's beyond trees. It's beyond it's thinking at a bit more at a specific level about what needs to be done and avoiding unintentional consequences, like for example the the impact on on peat. But but looking ahead to COP twenty six, um, I mean, what for you would be the next steps to get to net zero by twenty forty five? Camilla, what would they be for you? Well, as I say, I think um, looking at it from a global perspective. Um, there's obviously, you know, bridging that emissions gap about which, you know, Jim is is the expert. So I'll leave the detail to him. So there's the emissions gap. And then there's the issue around adaptation, loss and damage. So rebuilding the confidence and trust of those parts of the world that uh, see themselves always as being on the receiving end of the impacts, um, but with precious little in terms of resources to help build the resilience that they need. 
So um, that pledge of 100 billion needs to be upfront, credible, and ready to go now. Thanks, Kim. Jim? Well, well, just to say, I mean, the three uh, goals of the Paris Agreement are around uh, reducing emissions to limit warming between the well below two. It's the finance side of it, and it's increasing resilience. And these are interlocking goals. Uh, you, you can't achieve one without the other. And I think it's, it's incredibly important that there's progress on all of them uh, made made uh, when, when we get to Glasgow next week, given when we're, we're recording this. So... Um, so, so I, I, I think uh, at the moment there is a big gap still between the pledges, the nationally determined contributions that have come in, even the revised ones, and where you would need to be to limit warming to even below two degrees. So uh, there, there is still quite a long, a long way to go. And we could hope that some of that gap would be closed by the end of the COP, but uh, I, I think many people would probably want to be a little bit sceptical about it. But just to emphasise, and this is a really important IPCC point, we don't fall over cliffs at 1.5 or even 2 degrees in terms of damage. Every little bit of extra action counts. And I, I think we don't think we should give up and despair because we still have human agency at all points. And I mean, as, as a good reminder that these are, these are not cliffs, but, but thinking about actually the consequences if we don't make more progress, um, what are the practical implications, you know, in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years time? What might we be, expect to see um, in terms at a Scottish level and at a global level if we don't make more progress? Well, well just say, say Rebecca, the, this, the adaptation and impacts is not my area of expertise. You, you know, I come from, from the mitigation side of IPCC. But obviously, um, you, you know, uh, the, the, the biggest sort of infrastructure issues around Scotland are probably around flooding issues, as we saw in Glasgow yesterday, uh, you know, for, for example. But I think some of the bigger issues for Scotland would be sound, be around impacts on ecosystems, uh, which would be, be some, some of the bigger impacts there. Globally, uh, flooding effects on, uh, effects on crop productivity for crops, etc., are all going to be issues that come in and some of them will be gradual and some of them like sea level rise are pretty much unavoidable because it takes so long uh you, you to to get a response from the climate ocean system yeah well certainly thinking about the part of africa that i know best and have been following for 40 years um what you've seen so far is increased unpredictability around rainfall and annual weather systems, not only more drought, but actually in a lot of places, a lot more rain. But it's rain that comes um, in a few very, very large storms that deliver far more water than you can possibly use, rather than the, the more sort of drizzly rain, which is helpful to crop growth. And I think we'll just see more and more of those more extreme patterns of weather with the consequences that, that brings both for crop production, but also flooding of villages, of towns, of cities um, and associated infrastructure. Can I just say that there's, there's one other thing that I very much hope comes out of COP26, which is, um, you know, a real partnership between uh, 
different regions of the world to build the uh, low carbon energy infrastructure that's going to be needed, you know, all over the planet. Um, I think we in the UK have got a whole set of issues around how we build a grid that is clever and smart enough to take on increasing volumes of renewable energy, particularly, you know, lots and lots of micro generation. These are similar problems to grid design and development that you find in many developing countries in, in Africa as well. So I think there's a real, um, you know, big technical R&D challenge to see how to how to design and to roll out these sorts of solutions that are going to make a huge difference. And I hope having everybody together in Glasgow is going to enable some of those partnerships and ideas to get taken forward. I mean, you've actually led me, Camilla, quite nicely into, into my last question, which was to be a bit more positive and a bit more optimistic. We are, as Jim says, recording this just in the in the lead up to COP26. Um, you said about your hopes for um, uh, COP26, uh, Camilla. Jim, what are your hopes for it? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, we can have the grand hopes around the one hundred billion and uh, clo- you know closing the emissions emissions gap. Uh, just to say, I mean, th- this is this is not quite the landmark COP that say the you'd say the Paris COP was in twenty fifteen. This is much more about the implementation of the Paris Agreement and how you move the agenda forward. And I hate to be very, uh, you, you know, kind of technocratic and detailed on it, but there is a lot of sort of very unexciting kind of sub-negotiating going on, which is incredibly important. Uh, like, for example, around Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, for which we do not have a rule book on so-called internationally traded uh, m- mitigation options. So, so these, are, these, these kind of things matter. And if you're an aficionado... Uh, which I, I, I hope uh, people who are watching this are not, because I would pity them if they were. Uh, th- th- this is, is something we, we do need to make attention to, because these detailed things do matter. And, and I guess we've seen that in the sort of um, the next stage of the Just Transition Commission, which you chair, which is now very much focusing on delivery. I, I mean, just maybe closing on that, what are the key next steps for the Commission in terms of uh, delivering that Just Transition? Well, well, get it, well, I am the only member at the moment, so getting the other mem- <laughs> members of the Commission appointed would be a good stage, which, which, which I, I hope we do fairly quickly. But we haven't got the terms of reference nailed down precisely yet. Uh, but, you know, a big part of it will be monitoring and evaluating, uh, you know, the pro- progress. And we will be looking for metrics for doing that. Uh, we will be scrutinising and providing advice to the Just Transition Minister who's been appointed, Richard Lockhead. And we have a continued remit to continue with the kind of engagement we carried out in phase phase one. So these are the elements. They all go together, but we will have a much bigger analytical capacity in phase two than we did in phase one, given the delivery nature of the job. And can I just encourage you, Jim, as you take that forward, to think about um, kind of working with, sharing, learning lessons with other such processes around the world? I think. Um, as you say, the Scottish example has received um, perhaps undue attention, partly because so few other places have really um, gone forward much with this. But it seems to me that um, it's a really wonderful opportunity for people in many different parts of the world 
to try and get this right. And getting it right um, has to be through talking, listening and learning from others. And, and maybe that's where we will see some progress in, in COP in, in the coming weeks. Uh, Professor Jim Ski, Professor Camilla Tolman, thank you so much for sparing your time and your expertise today to talk to us about just transition in Scotland and beyond. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find previous Tea and Talk episodes on our website, rse.org.uk, or you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. For our latest news, details of events and activities, search for the Royal Society of Edinburgh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. 